LifeWatch set the foundation. They really did lay the groundwork for programs to start following rules and regulations and safety practices. I just think that link that LifeWatch always gave to rural and frontier communities. Welcome to Trauma Talk. Today we're discussing LifeWatch. LifeWatch was the third medical air transport service created in the U.S., and its home was right here at Wesley Medical Center. My guests today are four healthcare providers who all served at LifeWatch at one point in their career. And if you've flown in your career at any point in time, I guarantee LifeWatch has affected you in a positive way. It is a real honor to have an opportunity to document some of the early EMS history right here in Kansas that took place at Wesley Medical Center. Gentlemen, thank you for taking time to be on the show. Would you please introduce yourselves? My name is Lyle Webster. I'm a flight paramedic for Eagle Med here in Wichita. I worked for LifeWatch from 1981 until the program ended in the flight side of it ended in January of 2001 and made my first flight in June of 1981. Took a patient out of Wesley Medical Center to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Lyle, do you remember the aircraft? Yes, King Air 90. 895 Kilo was the tail number, and I have a lot of history with that aircraft because I also made the last flight in 895 Kilo. My name is Todd Getz. I am currently a clinical director for Air Methods, managing the Kansas and Nebraska bases. I started my flight career in Eagle Med, which was Kansas Air Life at the time in 2002. After four years, went to LifeWatch and flew for LifeWatch. 96 to 2000, and, uh, and then started with LifeSave in 2001, where I am still currently employed. Fix your start date at LifeWatch, though. Which one? What was it? Probably 90. 94. Is 94. What did yeah. I say? 84? You said 2004. 2004. <laughs> <laughs> Jody Gregg. Currently, I'm the Director of Physician Relations and Outreach for Wesley Medical Center. I started out, I went to paramedic training up at KU Med Center, graduated from that program in 1981. Then I worked with Reno County EMS for five years and then was fortunate enough to be hired by LifeWatch to, they were opening up a new base out in Hayes, Kansas in August of 1986. So I flew for, started in August of 86 through 88 when I graduated from nursing school there and then transferred to Wichita and flew from in Wichita up until 2000, and was the chief flight nurse for the last two years I was here. And then when the program closed, then I did outreach for Wesley Medical Center after that period of time. Frank Williams, I'm currently serving as the director of Butler County EMS. My tenure with LifeWatch started in May 7, 1996, and ended January of 2021 when the program's air medical side closed. And history before that was Butler County EMS, SICU, and Via Christi, St. Francis at the time, and and then on to more air medical career after that. Frank, I remember hearing stories of how hard you worked to become a flight medic nurse, and it's cool to have you on the show to talk about that. Well, so humbled in this group, and truly when I said I'm the rookie, I am the rookie, and you just heard the date. So I can remember driving when K96 opened, back and forth and back and forth to Via Christi from my house in Butler County. And just wishing somebody would give me a call. Please give me a call. Slipping notes to Diane Lippold saying, do you have any way that I could become a crew member at LifeWatch? So that was always a huge dream. And I was I was blessed when I got the interview because there were a lot of candidates when I went in and met with George Figgins and 
Jody Gregg in that little room in the Life Watch office. Vivid memories from sitting across the table and thinking, walking out of there thinking, there's no way. There's no way. There's way too many applicants. So, blessed. Thank you all for being on the show. Where would you like to begin? Well, some of the information that I, I, I learned a lot trying to go back and, and read a little bit about this, but Marvin Autry was the president of Midwest Corporate Aviation, and he made the first flight of for LifeWatch in October of 1974. It was from Beloit to Wesley Medical Center. And the way it all started was Dr. Dan Roberts, who was the head of the perinatal side, was taking flight lessons in the early 70s from Marvin Autry and told him a story just in their discussions about how many lives are lost, how many, how many, you know, infants are lost every year just because of the the way Kansas is and how there's there's not a lot of opportunities for, you know, advanced health care and newborns and premature infants and said, you know, I sure wish we could do something about that. And that's when Marvin said, well, Dan, let's fly them. And that's kind of where it all began. So along with Dr. Russell Nelson, who is the neonatologist for Wesley, Carol Lindley, who was the senior vice president of nursing, and she was part of the founding uh, founders of LifeWatch and Lino Jimenez, if I pronounced his first name right, was the CFO. He made the money side happen, and and that where it all began. When when LifeWatch started, it was the third flight program in the United States. The first one was uh, Flight for Life out of Denver, and they started in 1972. Probably everybody, certainly in this room, remembers Dr. Red Duke out of Herman in uh, Houston was very interested in that. And went to Denver and met with them and came back saying, we can, we can do this ourselves and started the second program, Herman Life Flight in 1976. And then LifeWatch came along and was actually the, the third, even though those, those dates don't really line up, but LifeWatch was the third flight program in the U.S. Throughout my lifetime in Kansas, the term life watch has also continually been used as a verb. A patient was life watched to Wesley. A patient was life watched from scene. Why do you think that word became so synonymous with being transported by air? I think in Kansas anyway, it's kind of synonymous. It's, it's kind of like the, the generic term like Kleenex. I mean, back when the program was was originated and started, there there were no other flight programs in Kansas. And so... I think just collectively, that's kind of what was ingrained in a lot of people's vocabulary. And, and it's still interesting today. You'll hear reporters that will refer to someone being life watched to Wichita. And you look at the reporter and you know that they probably weren't, may have even been alive when, when life watch started. But I don't know. I, it, it has carried on and, and we still have a life watch vehicle that has the life watch name on the side of it that we use for ground perinatal transports. So the name's still out there, but. The Wichita, just from my perspective of growing up while that was being developed, the media was consistently covering anything that was a major incident. And typically LifeWatch was part of that. So, I mean, I didn't even know that there was any other name for air medicine other than LifeWatch until I got into the business. So. One other, just antidote to what Lyle had said. Another story that I'd often heard was in the early days, Dr. Jiggs Nelson 
when they would would have a, a, a sick baby that was born out in a rural area, that the first kind of infant steps of that response was they would a state trooper would come in, pick up Dr. Nelson, put an isolate in the back of the patrol car, and then they would just drive kind of like what the highway patrol used to do with the blood runs, you know, rapidly out to where this small hospital was, and then Dr. Nelson would stabilize the baby and then utilize their local ambulance service to bring him back to Wichita. And I always thought, you know, that was an early story that I'd heard that I thought was pretty unique. When air medical transport first arrived in Kansas, did you have any hesitancy from patients to be flown? I don't think so. I think it was, you know, kind of a new, exciting thing to do, and and people didn't hesitate to use us. Another, another part of the transport world was the ground transport for the neonatal transports and the perinatal transports. And uh, Betty Rounds donated the first vehicle, which was a RV that they used, which was big enough to put a stretcher in there for mom, as well as an isolate for the baby. And that's where the term of the Betty vans came in. And during our time at, at LifeWatch, we went through three different ones, Betty one, two, and three, but it was all because of her donation many years ago of this RV that started that on the ground side. Well, and I think the hesitancy, I don't remember any, but again, Growing up during that time and starting my career in, in local pre-hospital medicine, it was the savior crew. I mean, this this is the rescue of all rescues that came in to help those that were, you know, talented already by being doctors and, and mid-levels and having expertise. But, I mean, you cleared the way when the Betty van came or when an aircraft was inbound. That was high priority. So, I mean, just the facade, because of the skills and the the modern technology that came along with it, crews having training and shoulder to shoulder with all of those physicians who in their own rights were leading the way in medicine, especially neonatology and, and high risk OB. So what aircrafts did you guys utilize in the beginning? The first was a beach queen air and I never flew in that aircraft, but that was the very first one that I'm aware of. And then, then they became or started using the the Beach King Air 90. The very first one we had was November 895 Kilo, and it was LJ, which is a marking for the serial number 25. So it was the 25th King Air ever made. It was, a, I believe, a 1965 model, and they got to two or three more after that, but in a, in a short amount of time. But that was the very first one that... I flew in, and then as far as the helicopter goes, it was an Alouette Three was the first helicopter that LifeWatch had here in Wichita. And then in, I believe, 1982, got two A-Stars. They were both brand new twin sister A-Stars and flew them both out of Wichita here. I remember I was a, a volunteer on the Valley Center Ambulance in 19... 19- 74, I think it was, or no, no, I'm sorry, 1979. And we had a fatality accident up on about 85th and Ridge Road. And one of the paramedics that arrived with Sedgwick County EMS at the time was Andy Armstrong. And Andy later on went on to fly with, with LifeWatch. And we were there at the scene and here this Alouette helicopter sits down and, and transported one of our patients. And Andy told me later on that, and that would have been in July or August of 79, that that was the first time that LifeWatch ever did a, a scene flight in the Alouette. So I 
feel like I was right there on the very ground floor of the scene type work that the Alouette did. But initially, it was just doing hospital-to-hospital transports, which WATCH stands for Wesley Air Transport to Community Hospitals. And that's what a lot of people, they don't realize, but that's what the WATCH portion of LiveWatch stood for. But that was the first time it made a scene flight. Was there a lot of red tape to go through to fly a scene flight back then? Well, and, and Lyle may be able to answer, but really that was one thing that I'm most proud of, I think, of this organization was when the national organization first began called Ash Beams, there was eight nurses in the room that started that whole organization. And one of those nurses was, was from Wichita and was from LifeWatch, and that was Kay Glasner. So she was on the ground floor of a national organization that really promoted safety and standards and, and protocols that in the early days, you know, there, there, there wasn't a lot of established protocols in, until the FAA stepped in and, and really kind of made some, some different guidelines and rules and so forth. But that was, those are the kind of things I'm proud of is the fact that, you know, just the history of how this organization and the, the champions of the, of the organization that really were instrumental in, in providing a new level of service in a new, a new mode of transportation to these real hospitals in Kansas. What were the parameters of LifeWatch's response area? I don't feel like we went in and to the destinations or or to pick up the patient as far away. Then it was it was more centralized to Kansas, and than it is now. Now it seems like you're 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 going to end up anywhere, and but back then it seemed like it was. You know, there was, I, I remember going into uh, one of my first flights going in to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Ray Rohuff was a pilot. And we flew a patient in there, and it was an, an IFR day. That, it, And he, I remember when he landed, he said, we're the first aircraft in here today. And we circled and circled, and, and they didn't have, I mean, there was no such thing as GPS back then. And, and, there's there's so much more safety equipment and aircraft today than there was back then. But we got picked up by an EMS crew and they were asking, you know, our titles and what we did. And I said I was a paramedic and they said, we don't have paramedics in Arkansas. There was none hmm. when I made this first flight down there. That would have been in 1981. So some of this stuff was kind of unheard of in a lot of other places. I mean, when we were the third one in the United States. It's, it's not, you know, it's not very common. I saw today the information's back from 2018, but now there's, in 2018, there was 1,114 air EMS bases in the United States. And so you could see what a huge difference that is today compared to back then. So it was relatively unheard of. So if you weren't in the area, I think a lot of places didn't even know it existed. But I think, again, Lyle touched on an important point. I think the advanced training that paramedics had in Kansas, I mean, with the program starting up in, you know, in the mid seventies, I remember even when I took the program in 1981 or 1980, fall of 1980, we had people from four out of state people that came to Kansas because back then you could do more from a first response or from a protocol standpoint in Kansas than you could any other state, the paramedics could. You know, I mean, we could run for complete codes and intubate and you didn't have to call a physician and, and not a lot of states were way behind us. And I think that, you know, we had some people that started the program 
I'm thinking like Don Hochschild and, and uh, Mike Dunnigan, people were in their first classes that brought that expertise and that training. And that helped, I think, really kind of set the standard for advanced care from a, from the paramedic or pre-hospital side to the program as well. But, but well, and we probably all were EMICTs. They, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Emergency mobile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Care technician. yeah. Be careful. With that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, this mm-hmm. the state of Kansas and Hawaii, and Hawaii still carries the MICT. But I think the big emphasis on cardiac care, like Jody mentioned, those are the only two states when I became certified that still carried that as a higher level and looked upon from other states as a higher level of a pre-hospital medicine. So, what were the requirements and training like at LifeWatch? Oh boy, you know Frank had kind of alluded to it. I, I remember. I I was in a class with Kay Glasner's brother at Butler County and him telling me about the flight program and, and that they had a a file cabinet full of applicants because, you know, from the from the EMS standpoint or pre hospital standpoint, it was kinda the the tip of the pyramid as far as, you know, trying to strive to, you know, kind of the top of the, the programs. And I just remember you know, talking, coming in and talking to, to Kay Glasner and, you know, just how many applicants they had. And, and I did that, I think, three times until she told me, well, if you're willing to move to Hayes, Kansas, we're opening up a base and we need a flight paramedic out in Hayes because we have to have intubation coverage. And by the way, if you go out there, you need to get your nursing license because if you ever want to come back and fly in Wichita full time, because of the way we were, we, the kind of flights we made, you had to be both a nurse and a paramedic. And I, I was always extremely grateful that I, again, just was lucky to get the nod and get the opportunity because I knew how many people had, you know, were, were also right there wanting in the same position that you, you owned. And so you never took it for granted that the, the position I think that we all got to serve in, that we were just very fortunate that we got the ch- opportunity because it's very, very competitive. Because the people, once you got on, most people didn't leave. Because there was no other programs, you know, in the state really, other than, you know, the Topeka program started, I don't know, roughly. 1988. Yeah. So they were a little bit behind us, but not far. My, I started in, as a full-time EMT at Sedgwick County in 1978, and there weren't any paramedic programs around here. So, but fortunately, because Dr. Ernest McClellan, who was our medical director for the adult side of LifeWatch, he had a requirement that all the nurses also be paramedics. So they started a class here in Wichita that was in an old schoolhouse over here that sat right where the old Wichita Clinic building is behind Wesley. And the class was started just for the LifeWatch nurses to get their paramedic certification. And so I happened to get in in that class in 1979 and but that was just because that was his requirement. If you wanted to fly here as a as a nurse, you also had to be a paramedic as well. And as far as the paramedic side went, it was just there was there wasn't that many of us for one thing. And so there wasn't the requirements. Now you have to have three years of critical care experience before you'll even be considered. And I'd been a medic for under two years when I started flying here just as a part time paramedic. But um that was that was kind of how how I got into class here was and I don't know if I said but Don Hoshield was a, the instructor who was a full time 
paramedic at, at uh, LifeWatch after, after doing that gig as our instructor. Probably everybody's training was a little bit different, but I know when I started flying as a flight paramedic, you know, we had an orientation to the aircraft, of course, and you have just safety around the aircraft. And, and it was a fixed wing King Air 90 based out of, out of Hayes. But then when I transitioned to Wichita, and this is what I always think that is so unique about the LifeWatch program is when I transferred to Wichita, I didn't fly for, I don't think, four or five months. Because when you came down here, you did, you did a month in NICU learning how to take care of neonates. You did a month with the neonatologist learning how to put in UAC lines, chest tubes, other specialty techniques. Then you spent a month in high-risk OB with the, doing, going back, taking care of high-risk OB moms, being in on deliveries, scrubbing in on deliveries, scrubbing in on, on C-sections just to assist or, be, or, or you know, be available. And then the, the last month we spent with Dr. McClellan, or I spent with Dr. McClellan anyway, doing intubations again and, and IV access and things like that. And that was what was always unique. I thought about a flight nurse paramedic with life watches. We didn't have any specialty teams back there. You did it all. You were the, in a 24-hour shift, you may start out flying two cardiac patients to, to Parsons, Kansas, and then one down to Winfield. And then, you know, later that afternoon, you know, you run a first response out here on the turnpike when you land on the highway. And then two o'clock in the morning, you know, you get a high-risk OB flight to Liberal. You get back from liberal and then, you know, they've got a, they've got a neonate at Salina that needs to be flown in. So, I mean, you could potentially see all that in a 24 hour shift. So, and it, that's very unique because there wasn't any, and I don't believe there still is a program here in Kansas that the, 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 the flight nurse paramedic was trained to, to do all of that. Now you, we have specialty crews, but back then it, you, you did it all, which I, I believe been very proud of the fact that you had that opportunity to do that. Serious question. What was the paperwork like? <laughs> it's still on the rooftop. <laughs> yeah. Pulling out a drawer. It's there. Yeah. It was two pieces front and back. Long. Yeah. 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 You had to write really small. That's, a, that's how you could tell whether a transport had been done or not. You just look at the flight nurse or paramedic and, and their lower flight pocket was rolled up the paperwork and on the other side was the narcotics box. So getting them out of the file cabinet. What inspired each of you to pursue a career in flight? My dad was a World War II veteran. And he was a pilot. He took me on my very first flight. He worked his whole career at Learjet. And so it was, it was just in our family. And, you know, I always wanted to be somehow involved in flight. And that's kind of what drew me there. Later, I went on and got my own pilot's license, my own instrument rating, and it's just something I'll always be involved with is, is flight in one way or another. Todd, what was your inspiration? Like Lyle, my, is my grandfather, though. He was also a veteran in World War II, but was actually shot down and killed, and so I never got to meet him. But that kind of growing up, knowing that was always, I was interested in aviation. I grew up living very close to St. Joe Hospital. And I still remember every single time that the A-Star helicopter, LifeWatch helicopter landed at the uh, convent for the sisters. And I would ride my bike up there and, and wait till the med crew that was you. took the patient to the hospital. And I would 
wait for the pilot to wave me over so I could go over <laughs> and look at the helicopter and get a tour. And, and it was, yeah, it was just a dream ever since then. And, you know, the, I never did get to fly in the A-Star, but it was for LifeWatch. I was, that was. Well, it's kind of similar story. My dad, he was an air crewman on a TBF Avenger during World War II and, and flew off of a Jeep carrier called the USS Kitcombe. So, yeah, you know, I always had these books growing up of, you know, the aviation and, and aspect of it. The first flight I ever got was dad was, was a state trooper and they were working radar over on our um, air traffic over on 254 and they had landed at Benton Airport for lunch and I, I wasn't very big, but they took, I got a flight up. My grandpa and, and myself got the, my grandfather at that time is probably in his early seventies, but he got the, he got to go up in the plane for the first time. And here I was probably maybe five or six years old and I got to go up in the plane just, so that was my first introduction to flight. But from a life, what standpoint, probably that scene at 85th and, and Ridge road and you know, you're down in the ditch and your hands are full and you're doing patient care and you look up and you see this aircraft that's about to land and all of a sudden a lot of your problems are going to go away. And the people that step out of that aircraft are, you know, just kind of in, you're just in awe of. So that, that really probably was what lit the fire for me to uh, strive to that, you know, that role. Frank alluded to this at the beginning of the episode, but when I was in paramedic school, my instructor, Cindy Webster, and this was 20 years ago, but I still remember the story, would talk about a flight medic nurse who marked every day on the calendar that they were working in those ICUs until they had enough experience to start applying for LifeWatch. And it was later on I learned it was you. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was really two pieces. When I was a young kid, LifeWatch and the helicopter would land at a park called Summit Park. And it was just down the street from the middle school. So as a young kid, we could hear it coming and we would ditch school sometimes out of the middle school, out the back door and go watch as the helicopter landed. And that was when the Alouette was still the Alouette, then the A-Star and then the Augusta a couple of times. And that's just as I was getting into EMS. But vividly for me in the breakover of my brain was, was Andover Road and 54 Highway when the A-Stars came to get two pediatric patients that were in an old white station wagon that rear-ended a truck, an old an old Chevy truck. And there were actually three patients because mom went with one of the pediatrics, and that's when you guys were hanging them in the A-Star. Because two patients would fit in an A-Star. And I was just in awe that without them that day, those patients would have had a chance at all. It's also the same day that I learned that you do not cut through a down coat with a bleeding patient because that gets all over everything. So I'm sure the flight crew was was cussing us left and right in that. So that was mine. But yeah, I I, I knew that day that that's what I was going to do. And then I got to meet, find people like Lyle and Jody as they gave classes. And, you know, the training and education things were cutting edge best practice as you guys talk about what you went through in training. And then when I came on the program, you know, it was more refined. Jody was the chief flight nurse and, and he had lined up or getting ready to be the fleet chief flight nurse and the senior person. And he'd lined those things up and they weren't, we were improvising. There was a shop vac that he used with, with Keith Paya and blacked everything out and simulated us being in the air and said, you know, I need you to reach for this and I need you to reach for that. And yeah, so it, it, it was best practice all the time. The ventilators, you set the, 
inspiratory time, the expiratory tr- time, and the percent flow. Curare, I still tell this story. Last week, we were doing RSI training, and, and we were talking about, you know, poison frogs, and they were making a joke, and I said, that's real. They said, you know, Curare was the go-to pre-medication before we gave succinicholine, and that's when the controversy of bringing those medications out of the OR into the flight world happened, and LifeWatch was one of the first, you know, in, in the United States, I think, to bring it to the field. So, For each of you, what's your favorite part of the job? I enjoy the the nurse medic role, you know, the the fact that you're working with somebody that's, you know, I'm working with a, with a nurse that probably has a, a great background in ICU or, you know, ER or whatever. And, and there's, we all have weaknesses and, you know, I don't pretend for one minute that on a balloon pump transfer that I'm the expert in there, but that ICU nurse knows that well, and they don't for one second when there's an airway that's, that's, you know, very difficult to handle. They don't pretend for one moment that, you know, that that's their expertise or whatever. And it's just a great blend. And I, I like that. I like that side of it. Our job descriptions are exactly the same. We're all expected to, you know, there's nothing that we can say that, well, you got that and I got this. It's just knowing that this is, this is your, you know, this is your background here and I'm going to, I'm going to take a back step and, and follow you. And I just try to, you know, the ability to surround yourself with great people and learn from all the great people that I've worked with over the years is just, it's just unbelievable. I like the teamwork. I like, you know, you, you, you train and train and train and you get to that call where it's hitting the fan and your nurse paramedic crew are in the back, your pilot knows things are not going well and you all just start working together. It's a bunch of nonverbal communication and it's, and it just goes really, you know, it goes smooth. And that, that, those are the flights that I, that I love. I love that teamwork that you, when you, when it all just comes together and it just works out well, that's, that's the best. I, I think twofold. One, it'd be the variety of the things that we got to do. Again, in a, in a 24-hour shift, you would take care of neonates, you'd take care of high-risk OB, you'd take care of medical, you'd take care of cardiac, and you might land at the scene of a pen and have a, an extrication they have to deal with. So so that kind of dynamic of, of variety was really appealing to me. But the second thing I think is that Todd had, had kind of referred to is you get very close when you're working, I think, as, as George Figgins had said in one of our earlier commercials that was put on, it's like working in a phone booth. You know, when you're there where you can reach up and touch the pilot on the shoulder and you can touch your 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 partner on the, you know, right beside you and the patient, it's a very close environment to work in. And, and it's a very team-oriented environment. I mean, we, you know, we would come back to the crew quarters. We have, our, you know, we all slept in our in our rooms at the crew quarters we all ate dinner together i mean it's you get very connected and you learn about people's families and when they're having bad days and good days and and you pick each other up and you know those kind of special groups like that are 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 very unique and if you're fortunate enough to get to work with a you know in in that kind of environment and in that type of a close team it's it's very very rewarding to me so that was that was a part of it that I really really enjoyed. 
uh, for me, it was just surrounding myself, like Lyle said, with, you know, experts in their own right of what they've done in their experience level. And it just made all of us better almost every day. I mean, and we would hear stories like a flight nurse paramedic that was expected to go to the OR with a general surgeon and do a C-section and be on the phone to walk through that because that particular general surgeon hadn't done a C-section since his residency 30 years prior. And knowing and anticipating that, man, I got to I got to lean on the person on my left and the person on my right and the person in the cockpit. And one way or another, we're going to get the job done. And that just elevated everybody, I think. And consistently, we were challenged with those things. And we learned from each other, even if we weren't on the flight or we weren't taking care of that particular patient. It was something that we all talked about and debriefed and discussed and and the what ifs next time. So uh, I don't know how much of that happens anymore because it's so rapid fire of things that go on. But that definitely made me better and surrounding myself, having access to the hospitals, going straight to an OR, going straight to the cath lab. You know, that becomes routine nowadays in some some programs and some some agencies. But that was cutting edge stuff back then. So. I'd add one more thing, and that would, that, that, that accountability that we all had. We had that Dr. Ernie McClellan was our, our medical director. And, uh, you know, there was times when it was kind of frustrating because you'd get a phone call or you'd get a radio traffic that said that 900 wanted to talk to you when you landed. But I, I learned to appreciate that a lot more later on in life because he really did hold everyone accountable. And many times it was just like, just explain yourself and be able to, why did you do what you did? Because another thing I enjoyed really about the profession was the autonomy that we had. I mean, you're out there truly, you know, in an aircraft at, at our level of, you know, and that, you know, there is nobody else to call. If something goes south, you've got to be able to to work your way through that. And with the guidance, of course, of, of good medical direction and Dr. McClellan was, was always good about you know, being there to support you, but again, holding everybody accountable. Mm -hmm. These are the standards and we don't deviate from and doing cowboy things or doing things that we shouldn't be out there doing without, you know, justification at, you know, the certain circumstances may not may warrant that, but again, being held accountable. And again, that helps set the standard and the expectation of where we're going to keep the program going and the level of care we want to get. And don't forget to put it in perspective for listeners is, I mean, the only form of communication outside of your partnerships and your crew was landlines. And so, you know, we had a UHF VHF system, but it was pretty unreliable. And I mean, we depended on a, you know, pager, at least for me. And before that, I'm sure you didn't have that, but it was landlines. It yeah, was, there was no listen to the report. Yeah. You couldn't use a cell phone in the aircraft yeah. in it when you're in flight. So that was not a FCC approved thing. Sat phones were the were the coolest thing ever invented when they first started hitting aircraft. That was like wow, incredible. Oh, any memorable calls you guys would discuss? What's the worst car you ever took? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how much time we got to order out food? Yeah. Well, I was on the uh, Andover tornado. I was on Life Watch one that day. On we were in the Augusta one hundred and nine. Uh, Jim Glasner was a pilot, and the flight nurse was Danny Ole, and that was in April of 1991. We got launched, first of all, to Pawnee and Greenwich, and 
where the tornado went through McConnell Air Force Base and then hit that Pawnee and Greenwich area. And we took a patient out of there and went to Wesley and dropped that patient off in a hurry because we knew we and we thought to go back there. And Carol was our dispatcher, I believe, and she said they want you in Andover. And we actually argued with her that, no, they, they've got a mess out here at Pawnee and Greenwich. We need to go back there. And she goes, well, they want you in Andover. And I'll never forget uh, flying to Andover and the helicopter got totally silent inside there as we flew over the top of that and saw the destruction that that took place down there. And we landed right in front of the Wendy's and got out. And, you know, I'll just always remember that. I remember a physician was waving, guys over here, over here, we got a really bad one. I went over there and I said, remember saying, doc, this patient's dead. You need to find somebody else that, that we can help. And he went on and there was, there was, people walking down the road with impaled objects and I had to tell myself, you know, this isn't a drill because we we do that in our training with moulage and and you actually had to like tell yourself that this is the real thing and that's something I'll always remember. And you know, we flew a patient that had an impaled object in her chest and she was definitely in in dire need of getting to a trauma facility in a hurry and we flew her to Wesley and then more weather moved in. We went back out there by ground, but I was on that flight. And then also on the DeBruce grain elevator flight in June 8th of 1998, that was memorable. Frank Williams was on that day and actually they were a second crew on the fixed wing and they went up to the helipad at the burn center and we just kept flying patients back and forth. I think we flew seven or eight patients that day. And we'd just turn them over to them. They'd take them up to the burn center and we'd go back to the scene. But those are two memorable flights. Yeah. Like Jody said, we could tell stories on that all day long. Did any of you have a specific favorite between being on the fixed wing or the helicopter? I was, you know, I felt fortunate at LifeWatch that you did both. And where I'm at now, we do both. And I I worked for a LifeStar Kansas out of Junction City in Lawrence for, I was up there for about eight years. and. It was strictly rotor. I truly enjoyed that as well, but it was it's nice to, to do the blend. And I think everybody, you really don't hear people complain if they're on one aircraft over the other or, or whatever. They're, the, the fact that a, a fixed wing goes so far away and you don't make plans the next morning because you may or may not be coming home, as you all know. So, but I enjoy both. I always enjoyed the ability to switch between aircraft. I would agree. Absolutely. I mean, nothing like landing in on a highway in a no, helicopter. No. There, that'll never. Absolutely. But yeah, I loved the, the flexibility of going to places that I'd never been to before in the fixed wing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like the, the, the again, flexibility of, of both aircraft, but then also I, I got to work out of three rotor wing airframes, starting with a star. And then we had the Augusta for a while, which that was the very first Augusta in the nation. The Mac. And the last, the Augusta 109 in the nation. A model. A yeah, model. <laughs> so I can say I flew in that. And then we had the the uh, Bell 222. And then we also, to back up the Bell 222, we had a BK 105. So, yeah, 117. And, and yeah, and, you know, each one of those aircraft had you know, could do, they had their own unique things that they were really great at, but like the BK-117, it, you know, rigid rotor system, it would go really well into a tight landing zone, but 
it wasn't the smoothest ride, which you get in the 222 and that was like going on a family vacation in a Cadillac. I mean, just the, the way the rotor system was on that and it just was aerodynamically so much smoother to fly in, but it didn't, it wasn't as good as maneuverable like a Porsche in a, you know, in a LZ, you know, a tight LZ. But so anyway, just that variety of the uniqueness of each one of those aircraft, that was kind of a nice experience. To have. Well, and for listeners looking up, you know, old shows like Airwolf, which was the debut of the 222, and we had the UT version with the skids on it. But yeah, it's pretty amazing. A shout out to the pilots. I mean, you know, we talk about the medical and the clinical piece of that, but none of this was possible without all of the the professional aviators, a lot of those military background when it came to both helicopter and fixed wing, because without them, we wouldn't have went anywhere and definitely wouldn't have returned as safely as we did. I know on the Alouette 3, Jim Glasner was the pilot as well as the mechanic, and he could tear that aircraft completely down and put it back together. And so I always felt very comfortable, you know, flying in it when he's putting it back together for his own safety as well as ours. And he certainly did that for a number of years, as did Dave Landall, Ray Rohuff, for all. And, and a lot of those pilots flew both. They they flew both the fixed-wing and rotor-wing aircraft back then. Well, I think all those that you mentioned were all in the Kansas Air National Guard together. I think they all flew together, I believe, up at Topeka at one time. So I think that really helped. Yeah, a, a lot of their safety, a lot of the the things that they brought to the program, you know, collectively from what they were learning from the military side. But a lot of them had, you know, also combat-related experience, I mean, from the Vietnam era. And so we had, to, to Frank's point, I mean, we had some, I was always blessed with excellent pilots and, you know, that had lots of experience. And, you know, I think one thing that we we always strive to do was, you know, our pilots never knew what we were going after. I mean, that wasn't part of the equation. They based whether or not we could go because of whether, you know, the weather or, you know, other factors like that, but not about, you know, what the condition of the patient was. That wasn't, that wasn't, that kind of pressure wasn't ever put on. And that, that just makes it a, a more inherently safe program. I think it's kind of impressive to me. Listen to, to Jody's comment just now about, you know, not telling the pilot about what was going on. That was, that was happening before it was ever. Now it's, it's, you know, it's required. Yeah. I mean, that's so, I mean, it was LifeWatch set the foundation. I mean, they really did lay the groundwork for programs to start following, you know, rules and regulations and safety practices that, that we all use now because of CAMES accreditation and FAA rules that weren't around back then. They just, they learned through doing it that they were, those were the best practices. I think that's, that that's pretty cool i think one thing you mentioned you know we talk about technology too you know and and lyle had said that you know how the technology had changed where you know back then we didn't have an asos or an automated weather reporting system at all these airports like we do now and i remember when i was in hayes i think we had a 500 foot tower out there and our pilot at the time you know we didn't have really great reporting weather you know you kind of get regional stuff so he'd call his wife and and say, hey, go out and look at the tower and ha- tell me how many lights you can see up. Because if you can see at least four lights, I think we were good to go. And But that was that was the way we'd do it. And, you know, because we knew we had at least, I don't know, 400 feet or 500 feet visibility for landing. But 
But so his wife would go out and she'd say, well, I can see five lights on the tower. So we were, you know, that was, that was a visual reporting weather for us. But well, I have to tell you, I learned some things today from these guys because, you know, you, you go along in a career and many times we never step back. Cedric County EMS has their own right of, of experiences along with this entire facility as you walk the halls and you look at the pictures of the nursing program that Wesley ran. It's, People don't appreciate or understand that and realize how much of a tie it is to, to one trigger that created a whole new program or a whole new way of life for somebody. And, and for me, you know, the day that, that I was accepted as a flight crew member changed my life forever. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, one of the biggest things I'm the most proud of here is, was our safety record. I mean, in 27 years, we never injured a crew member or we never injured a, a, a patient. And, you know, I, Again, very blessed. Well, as we close out this episode, that really should be a series in its own right. Do you guys have any closing thoughts on your time at LifeWatch? Well, I would say that, you know, just the support from this facility at the time, you know, it was my memorable flight was with Dr. Paul Harrison, you know, the father of trauma in Kansas, as I look at it. But picking him up and taking him out and multiple other, you know, fourth and fifth year surgical residents that we could take right to the bedside at the time. And then assist them in the best practice of trauma care. That happened on a routine basis. Medications that we would pick up from here that no other hospital would have to to take bedside. Valpuric acid, of all things, was one of those for a seizure that had been going on for hours before we got there. So I just think that link that LifeWatch always gave to rural and frontier communities. And we didn't even talk about the Hayes and the Dodge Cities, the Garden City aircraft, which you know, everybody thought helicopters was air medicine. And the truth is the most re- reliable platform we ever were on was a fixed wing, all weather. Absolutely. The maintenance that, that, that was top notch. And of course, being in the air capital of the world, you being in the 25th serial number of a Beach King Air C90, I mean, that's something to be said of the support that was there. But that's where I think a lot of the real impact had was all of those fixed wing flights to get those patients, even when we couldn't go by helicopter. I can remember changing platforms because we're grounded even remotely in a helicopter and loading our patient now onto a fixed wing to get them where they needed to go. So, Knowing that the, the King Air was just the ideal aircraft, being able to, you know, have reverse props and be able to shut down on a short runway. And I remember there was, it was interesting that a lot of the small communities out in Western Kansas, they raised money so that they could extend their runways you know, just for the purpose of being able to have air ambulance aircraft to be able to land there. And Frank had mentioned, you know, we did have bases both in, in Dodge City. That was a first remote base. And then we built, had the second base in Hayes, but we also had a base in uh, Amarillo, Texas at one time too. So LifeWatch extended down to Amarillo, Texas for a brief period of time. But, but no, like Frank said, you know, that's my first 200 and some flights were on just nothing but King Air out of Hayes. And, and I mean, I, I gained a, a great deal of respect for rural medicine and the challenges that rural medicine faces. And, you know, the, the family practice doctor and the nurse practitioners, the PAs, the backbone of rural healthcare in those communities and, you know, what we could do to support it. Well, thank you again for being on the show and sharing with us your experiences and the rich history that Kansas has in the air medical transport field. 
And to our listeners, if you have any questions for our guests or requests for upcoming topics, you can always email me at aaron.shutton at wesleymc.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.